They're going with Miss Laurie Masser, looks like. While they're doing that, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts 14. If you brought something with you or device, you can turn to something on. Um, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, so it would be beneficial if you were looking at something. It is on the screen, but I'd rather you see it in front of you. And while you're uh, getting there, um, just uh, this is your first summer with us. Um, the school looks a little different every week. They're, they're cleaning some floor. Some, the kids might be in a different hallway. The equipping classes might be in different places. Um, and that's perfectly normal and okay. Just come expectant for something to be a little different and you'll be fine. Your expectations will be met. Um, and as we've been in this journey, uh, you know, this is like nothing. We've been you know, downtown, literally people passed out from drinking all night in the bushes right next door to us. Um, uh, we were in a party venue where the, week before, the night before they had some huge party and their fried shrimp all over the floor. Um, anyway, it's been an interesting run. So, you know, changing kids' rooms up is really no big deal. Um, and let me also say, as I'm like mentioning a few things, uh, next week we're having a commissioning service for the Shreveport Church. That is next week, right? Yeah, next week. Um, so you can kind of see that our, our crowd has thinned out a little bit. A lot of Shreveporters, they've already begun meeting on Sunday nights. And so that is their weekend service and they have that. So they're not been coming to both. They're welcome to come and some still do. Um, but uh, that's what's going on there. And so uh, next week kind of ends their serving on our kids teams and other things. And they're going to start serving the Shreveport Church, Covenant Shreveport in some way. So um, if you'll make plans, if you're here to be here as we celebrate that, just a really cool and surreal experience right now as we're walking through what God is uh, leading us to in that whole journey. And that will end our focus on church planting too um, for the month of June. So last week we looked at Acts 13. And the point of the message last week and application from that text to us was simply put that every follower of Christ has been called into the mission of God both generally and specifically. Generally, as we are all uh, ministers of reconciliation, and specifically, as God has planted you in a very unique way and wired you in a very unique way and given you a light that you can shine in the part of darkness, your corner of darkness in which you live, work, and play. So both generally and specifically, he's also birthed in you this passion that's different from everyone else. Um, and you can see that even in our body. Some people have a passion to work with uh, teenagers, and some people have a passion to work with kids, and some people have a passion to work with uh, elderly adults, and some people have a ministry in nursing homes and a ministry to missionaries and, and all sorts of things, right? This is what God is doing in and through us. So that, that was kind of the point last week. But I don't want to look at this mission of God with some kind of rose-colored glasses that we think everything is just rosy from here on out. So a lot of us think that once we kind of get the dream or the vision from God of what he's doing and where he's sending us, that everything's going to be okay. And uh, maybe more than that, everything's going to be good and without much resistance. And we bought into this weird, you know, American dream myth that the gospel goes forward without resistance. And that is certainly just not the truth. So we're going to look at that today in Acts 14, and Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of their first missionary journey. So last week, they're commissioned, Acts 13, they're sent out by the church at Antioch. Um, 
And this is their journey as they start. If you'll follow along with me again, like I said, we're going to read the whole chapter. And because this is a narrative about what happened, and then we're going to draw some truths there that I think have immediate application to us. Um, let's just dive in. 14 uh, verse 1. Now in Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When the When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe and cities of Lyconia and the surrounding countries and they continued to preach the gospel. So this is the picture of them going forward. You see, right, the gospel's going forward. It's accepted and rejected. They get run out of the city. Paul's like the energizer bunny here. He just like keeps going, preaching the gospel. It's so encouraging. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who couldn't use his feet, and he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, their, their language, The gods have come to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, this is so funny to me, right? Brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews from Antioch, that was the city they had just been in, And Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas and to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra, the city he had just been stoned in, and Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia and from there sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived together, the church together, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. It's amazing to me all that happens in this chapter, and I encourage you to read it again 
Um, I've been in this chapter for a couple weeks now, reading it again and again. And it's amazing to me, as most of these uh, people that I like to read and I like uh, the commentary on it, they just don't have a whole lot on this first journey. But the chapter contains stories of more sacrifice, more examples of the Holy Spirit at work. It notes more contextual gospel proclamations. It mentions more um, mixed responses to the gospel as well as opposition upon opposition, just as it did in chapter 13. As a matter of fact, this seems to uh, become the defining point in Paul's life and ministry. And rightly so, when you pick a fight with Satan, expect things to get difficult. Paul saw these events as stories of endurance. Right from the start, we see Paul sees this incredible supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and he also experiences incredible pain of persecution. This is so good to read. It's so good for my heart to read. I don't know if you ever get in this place to where you kind of, you know, you kind of get in this like uh, self-pity thing, like this life is so hard. Or I, I begin to think sometimes, this ministry is so hard and so costly. And then you read someone like Paul, who is literally getting stoned, and then just gets up and goes to the next city. And he just keeps going and going, and God doing incredible things through him. Paul sees this incredible supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, at the same time, this incredible pain of persecution. And this is so good for us to see and hear, because there's this myth that I mentioned before, that once we've found the right path, once we're secure in the will of God, we're walking in God's will, that opportunities will fall in your lap and everything will evolve easily. Isn't that what we say? Like, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will? And, and I agree with that on one part, because we're not under the wrath of God. But that doesn't mean that things are easy. Because this is clearly God sent Paul to do this very thing, and he gets stoned multiple times. You can turn over to Corinthians and find that little excerpt where he's talked about how many times he's been shipwrecked and, you know, beaten with rods and just left for dead again and again and again. Just because you're in the center of God's will doesn't mean that you have chosen the path, path of safety. And that's a good thing, because ultimately our hands and our lives are, are, are in the very hands of God, and we should follow him wherever he leads us. I feel like the enemy keeps a lot of us from doing real effective ministry and mission by holding us captive to fear. The problem with this myth that once we're in the center of God's will that everything's easy from there on out is that life and the Bible prove otherwise. Your own life, certainly you walk through difficulty, even as Jason mentioned before, that there's a lot of people right now in our body that is just walking through very difficult times. And I pray that this message is an encouragement to you. It certainly has been to me. The point is simple, that we are going to suffer. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't offer a way that included taking up your lawn chair and following him. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, come follow me at like an easily, uh, in, in stroll, like, you know, this, this something that is just so comfortable. As a matter of fact, that he would tell his disciples, hey, listen, I want you to count the cost before you come and follow me, because following Jesus is costly. The cross was an instrument that people died on, and the disciples understood that anyone who belongs to a people movement that has a crucified Lord at the head can count on a Calvary Road experience themselves. Paul might say you can't avoid the risk, therefore embrace it for kingdom purposes. 
I got a few things that I just want to, that I see so apparent here. And I, I really wrestled with this text as to what, what to share. There's so much in here. And again, I would encourage you to read it again and again, and maybe even go read Second Timothy. Here's the first. Life is hard and ministry is opposed. Life is hard. Any time frame of life, you would, you're going to come to realize that life can be very hard when we check out the news and we see evidence of a fallen world and hurt and pain and evil everywhere. Certainly evidence that Satan is not giving up w- willingly. And that's the world that we were born into. A world at war. We were born behind enemy lines, living our lives in a war zone. And if you live in a war zone, then you expect the battles. The problem is sometimes we forget where we are. Paul tells us in Ephesians to put on full battle gear and go fight. At the end of his life, he said that he had fought the good fights. He was using boxing and fighting terms on more than one occasion to illustrate what the Christian life ultimately looked like. And if you've tried to really follow Jesus, and if you've tried to really take the words of Jesus and amplify them into a broken world, you are going to face resistance. You are going to face difficulty. I don't know where these prosperity preachers get this idea that you can go through life with ease and just wealth and prosperity. It is certainly not in the New Testament. It is a gospel that is really no gospel at all. The gospel is that we serve a crucified but risen Savior. And he has called us to follow him, telling even his own disciples and warning us that we will walk through difficulty in this life. Paul would later tell Timothy, who was from Lystra, the place he got stoned. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. And sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, talking about this journey he was just on, which I endured, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, and underline this if you're daring enough, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as America moves more and more post-Christian, your ideas of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are going to be further and further from accepted. And we as a church have to decide what to do. Are we going to water down the message of the gospel? Are we going to read the Bible and only select certain parts of it that make us feel better about ourselves and, and, so, and so dilute the gospel to the point where it's not the gospel anymore? Or are we going to be faithful to the doctrine, to the theology that the Bible espouses of the creator God who sent Jesus for us? As I think back, there's not many in Scripture, maybe no one in Scripture, who ever walked with God with ease. There's just not many of them. One difficulty after another, as God calls them to take steps of faith, to trust in him. And I've said this before, as a matter of fact, when you read through the Old Testament, it's like God even stacks the deck against them so that it would be so difficult that they would have to rely on the power of God to get through it. The effects of sin, the brokenness of the world, our old sin nature, all of it leads to a life of difficulty. And at some point, this flies in the face of our pursuit of the American dream, the idols, 
of comfort and safety. And to the next degree, especially if you push against the kingdom of darkness, especially if you're really trying to live out this thing. It's one thing to attend a gathering on a Sunday and nod your head in agreement. It's something else entirely to uh, revolve your entire life around the lordship of Jesus. Waking up every day, as we talked about last week, and the first breath you've taken in, God, I'm a missionary today. I'm your sent person. We are your sent family. We're living, we know we're living in a dark world. Use us today in our jobs or in our relationships where we live, work, and play. Use us as an extension of the gospel that people can see and, and, and they can even hear from us the gospel declared. That's a completely different thing than just cultural Christianity. And this is what the gospel has radically called us into As James would say, don't merely listen to the word, shaking your head in approval, but do what it says. Rearrange your life around it because it's the thing that really matters. And when you really begin to live like that, when you begin to push back the darkness, when you begin to to enter into the brokenness in this world, many of you have joined into this, uh, this process of adoption and orphan care and you see the brokenness everywhere. And as if it couldn't get any worse, it just keeps getting worse. If you're into that kind of fray, just expect the opposition from the enemy. Paul says, life is hard and ministry is opposed. The next thing, we could, we could really spend all day on that. I, I don't have time for that specifically. You want some encouragement, though. I said earlier, go read 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is, a, uh, is Paul writing to Timothy, again, who is from Lystra, who is pastoring a really difficult church, started really young in ministry. 2 Timothy, he is so discouraged. He's ready to give up. He may even be out of ministry at that point that the letter is being written by Paul. If you're in that stage, you're just being so discouraged. Maybe that would be encouragement to your heart. The second thing I, I want us to look at in this passage is that the gospel is announced. The good news of Jesus is announced. Everywhere it goes. I mean, you just cannot read through it. Every town, on his way home, he's not wasting any time. He's not, he's not wasting any stop at, the, at Hardee's. He's, he, is, he is like, everywhere he goes, he is speaking the gospel. And I love first, uh, just a few things about this gospel being announced First is his contextual approach. Now, if you read 13 and 14, read it a couple times and notice the different way that that Paul actually announces the gospel. With the Jews and God-fearers, mostly in chapter 13, Paul spends little time on the doctrine of God, and he gets right to Christ. But with the Gentiles, he concentrates most of his time on developing this concept of creator God. With the Greeks and Roman, Paul goes to Christ's resurrection first, not the cross, because it had spread around. People knew and they had heard of this Jesus who had been raised from the dead. When it comes to speaking about sin, Paul is clear in his message to the Jews that the law cannot justify them. That moral effort cannot save them. Look at Acts 13.39. In effect, Paul is saying to Bible believers, you think you're good, but you're not good enough. You think you can keep the law, but you'll never keep it to the standard which God requires. And Paul would later say in, in Philippians, hey, listen, I know. If anyone could keep the law, I kept the law. And still I failed at keeping the law. 
You think you're good enough, but you're never going to be good enough. However, his approach with an audience not familiar with God is to urge them to turn from worthless idols. That's what it said in verse 15 as we read. Turn from worthless things, these idols, to the living God who is true and is our source of joy, Paul says. In effect, Paul says, you think you're free, but you're enslaved to dead idols. You're worshiping things that were made by hands. Now, this is no sandwich board gospel proclamation of Paul standing on a street corner. No, Paul is taking time to listen to these people, to understand their fears and motivations, and to help apply the gospel in a very unique and descriptive way. And this is what a missionary does. Inviting people into your life, looking for ways to apply the gospel to their situation, looking and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit for God to open a door where you can declare and display the gospel to them. Look at his contextual approach, and this is what God is doing in us. Growing up, I thought that the only gospel approach was the four spiritual laws or the fake $100 bill. Have y'all seen that track that they used to give out? I've been fooled by that more times than not. Or the gospel printed on like a a bathroom stall, like in some way. Like there was only one way to articulate the gospel. But we see in Paul, he's so diligent to speak to them on their language and to take some things that they do understand and connect it to the story of God. It takes some work. I know Winston just taught a, a, a class on gospel fluency, which I would encourage you. We could give you resources on this if you feel like you could be strengthened in this area. Paul takes time to have a contextual approach. And you'll see this as you keep reading, as we keep reading the book of Acts. It just continues. Paul's so brilliant in this. Second about the gospel I want us to see is that it's offensive. Now you see it in this text on many levels. People are being told that their understanding of God and ultimate reality is wrong. Now nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Anybody in this room just love to be told that you're wrong? Paul's going into this, a few days of introduction, hanging out with him, and then he's going to drop the truth bomb on you that you are basically wasting your life. That everything that you've worked to build this ladder of success, you find out that you've actually, your ladder's leaning against the wrong tree. Jews are told that though they think they understand the God of the Bible, they've seriously misunderstood the scriptures. Gentiles are told that though they think they understand the world, they've seriously misread creation and their even own, own, their own instincts. There's only one true God who's created all things. Both audiences are told about a God who is powerful and good. It says over and over in our passage that he declared the good news to them. Now, this is a great challenge to Paul's audience and to us regarding sin and depravity. The Jews are trying to obey the law, and pagans are giving themselves to idols and gods that can't satisfy. One group is trapped in works righteousness, the other more conventional idolatry. But both audiences are trying to save themselves, and both are failing and miserable. Paul's response to this is a proclamation of Christ as the answer and solution to their sin. Both Jew and Gentile are told to turn from their schemes of performance because God has broken into history to accomplish our salvation. Isn't that the best news? That you've got nothing to earn or nothing to prove today. That you don't clean yourself up to be good enough to to have God's favor placed on you. That it's not according to your own merit or your own work. It's by grace through faith. 
That is the gospel. If you think you're good enough for the gospel, then, you're, then, then you've missed it. If you think you can only come into the kingdom of God bringing your resume of all the good things you've done and how they outweigh the bad things you've done, then you've missed it. This is not about you and your performance. Again, nothing to earn and nothing to prove. We come convicted of our sin, assured that Christ's death on the cross and his atonement on the cross for our sin was acceptable before a holy God. The gospel is offensive, and not just to people who are lost. Can I be honest with you that the gospel is offensive to me? And the gospel should offend you? When you read the Bible, it should offend you. It confronts our wrong thinking. It exposes our recurring idols. It convicts us of sin. If every time you read the Bible, you walk away feeling better about yourself, then you're really reading it wrong. You're going to the passages that you, that you really like, like nothing is impossible with God. Not the passages where Peter or Paul preaches a sermon with their little bony fingers in people's face saying, you're the one who crucified Jesus. Go read the Sermon on the Mount and tell me that if you're not careful and reading it in the, light, the right light, that that doesn't make you feel like a terrible human being. How many of us are eager to go bless those who are cursing us, doing good to those who hurt us, to bless our enemies. We don't even want to bless our friends, much less bless our enemies. This is what I mean when I say the gospel is offensive. The gospel, the truth of God's word, should force us to the end of ourselves again and again and force us onto our knees to the feet of Jesus where we say, even as John the Baptist say, that I must decrease so that he must increase. Again, we could spend the rest of today on that. Let's, let's move on. The third thing really quickly about the gospel is that it's accepted and it's rejected. Some people responded to the gospel by repenting and belief. That's encouraging. Others threw rocks at the messengers. That's discouraging. And where the gospel is really preached, the same happens today. Some accept it and their lives are forever changed. Some people hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. It finds fertile soil and it literally revolutionizes and changes their, their, their entire worlds. However, some people hear the same message and they reject it and they oppose it. And not only do they just oppose it, not only do they just dismiss it, it's an all-out attack on the messenger. And I think we know this. I hope we know this. And the further we get to a post-Christian culture, the more this is going to be a reality for us. It's funny, just a couple months ago, I was reading an article of where Christianity was really growing the fastest. And I think I've even shared this with you. The top four countries where Christianity is growing the fastest, literally the fastest, are all countries that are closed off to Christianity where persecution is at an all-time high. Last time I checked, the first nation that it's growing the fastest is Iran. Where if they get wind of Christendom in your world, I mean, immediately, you're ostracized from your community if you're not killed on the spot. 
Christianity is blowing up there. Who was it, Tertullian, that said that the blood of the martyrs would become the seed of the church? It has a way of proving to us that this Christianity is not some kind of game. This is not some kind of ideology that, that, that we just kind of add to our uh, Facebook page. Like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I'm a CrossFit nut or something. Whatever, whatever we're using to describe, that's not Christianity at all. As, as a matter of fact, it's such a paradigm shift that it completely revolutionizes people's lives. Not just correct thinking, but to have the God of the universe adopt you into his family and his Holy Spirit come to literally reside in you. Changes everything. For us to think that the gospel will always be accepted is foolish. But also to think that the gospel will always be rejected is foolish. It's amazing to me when I read after these Missionaries who've gone into really difficult places years and years ago in the 17 and 1800s and how they would go and they would labor literally their entire lives. Hudson Taylor and Adnar Judson, literally their entire lives given to the mission and losing uh, kids and losing even spouses because of uh, disease. And have one convert at the very end. How does someone persevere through such difficulty for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years of direct opposition? And you're not seeing the gospel take any root. And these people believed this song that we sang just a moment ago. That I will rejoice. That, no, that, no, that, the, 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 that the, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church itself. As we were singing that song, I just kept thinking of these missionaries. I kept thinking of Paul and Barnabas, that, 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 that they would be singing these words with such confidence. And yet we sing them as a church so flippantly. Let me hit the last few points. Here's the third point and the final point is that we persevere together. We persevere together. I mentioned this last week. I'm going to say it again today and probably a thousand more times. Not only because you need to hear it, but because I need to hear it. One of the greatest gifts of grace to you and myself is the body of Christ. Now, again, we live in a very individualistic, lone ranger. I can handle it. I'm a self-made man. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I, if there's a problem, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. I don't need anyone else's help. That's the culture. It's even the culture in our church. Most of us, if we run into any kind of difficulty, we feel shame by letting anyone know, by inviting anyone in to help. Maybe we'll let them bring us a meal, but we won't expose our heart or our fear or the idols that we're tempted. We, too, have believed this lie of individualism trumps community, and it is just... It is just antithetical from what the Bible teaches. If anything, the Bible teaches again and again. Go read the book of Hebrews. Read chapter 2, read chapter 10, read chapter 4 of Hebrews. I mean, it's just everywhere in there that we persevere together. 
that the greatest gift, that one of the greatest means of grace God has given us is other people to do life in community with, to be on mission with, to walk through the ups and downs, the hills and valleys of life with, that we invite people over, that we open up our heart, we let them know what we're afraid of, what, what, what the enemy uh, continues to shame us with, that we, we open our lives and ourselves to each other, that we pray for each other. James says we should even confess sin to one another so that we may be healed. We need each other more than we know, more than we think. Not only is this gospel community thing, uh, the lab where we flesh out the gospel of 41, one another's in, in the gospel that, that, that talks about how we should bear one another's burdens and care for one another and love one another. But it's God's design and how we persevere. These people stone Paul. They think he's dead. That's a pretty good stoning. Like, to visibly see, that dude's not breathing anymore. He's probably dead. Now, I don't know what happened here. I don't know if, if Paul can just, like, play possum really well. He's like, you know, see a bear, just lay there like you're dead kind of thing. Or if, uh, or if he was healed in some way, or if he had, like, this incredible, you know, like a superhero kind of thing where you get hurt and you just kind of heal, heal pretty quickly. I'm not sure. I, I know it says that after he was killed, they dragged him out of the city thinking that he was uh, dead, and the disciples come. Verse 29, sorry, verse 20. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. And he entered back into the city. Which I'm like, like a horror movie. Say, hey, Paul, don't go back in there, bro. They hate you. Like, it's, it's time for you to go somewhere else. On the next day, he goes with Barnabas to Derby, And then it just tells us he just continues preaching when they had preached the gospel to that city. When they, the point is, is, is perseverance together. The disciples gather around him after he's been beaten. They, him and his little entourage, we know certainly of Barnabas, likely there were others. They just go into the next city and they make disciples because that's what they do. In verse 21, this is what gets me. In verse 21, they go back to the city where he was left for dead to encourage these believers. One, these believers need encouraging, right? They had just come to faith. They saw these such hostility in their own city, likely some of their own family members hurling rocks at Paul to kill him. They need encouraging. Paul goes right back into the city where he was left for dead to encourage these believers. And it specifically mentions three ways that they encourage the believers in that city. These cities. He goes back and traces his steps, even though it had been faster just to take a ship and go back to Antioch. First, by strengthening their souls. What it says in verse 22. He returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And this is a separate point, but I love, too, that Paul's effort is not to plant churches, but to make disciples. That's why he went there. He says multiple times, he's there to make disciples. His thing was not organizational leadership. He was there to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Because when your focus is making disciples, you always get churches planted. 
This is what his focus is. This is what his aim is. He goes back through them first to strengthen their souls. This is not the first time. It says, talks about this again in Acts 15, uh, a couple places in Acts 18. This word strengthening their souls literally means to, um, to, to establish or to reestablish, to, to sure up a foundation. It's from the root word uh, where we get the, the word steadfast or steadfastness. It's the same word used by Jesus to Peter when Peter uh, was going to be sifted. He says, now, in Luke 22, go strengthen your brothers. Paul's going to remind the disciples to teach them of who God is and remind them of what he's done. That they haven't, they haven't left the life they knew in vain. Think about what it cost them to follow Jesus in the city. They likely had to leave their occupation. They likely had to leave their family. Something akin to what's happening to the, the, the missionaries that we support over in Southeast Asia. As we see these converts, we showed a video a couple of weeks ago, have they come to Christ in there? Can you imagine? Not only is this paradigm changing of the gospel, and your life is changing, but, but now the trade that you've learned your whole life is gone, and now the friends that you've had your whole life is gone, and now likely the family that you've had and known, your whole way of life, everything changes for the gospel. And it's beautiful to them, and they do it with joy. Even as the, the passage that Jesus, the parable that Jesus uh, uses in Matthew about, about the man that goes in the field and finds a treasure, and with joy he leaves and sells everything he has. He literally cashes in everything so that he can buy the field, and he does it with joy because the treasure in the field is worth far greater than everything else. And then in American Christianity, you, you, we have to stand on stages and entertain people. So, man, just by chance that they would give the gospel consideration. And Paul's not doing any of this. If anything, he's saying, listen, Jesus is the way. He's the good news. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove. Hey, likely you're going to get stoned. Jesus is saying, listen, count the cost. This is not easy believism. This is not padding numbers. This is not trying to submit some report of, of how many people have been baptized. That is ridiculous. This is the gospel being preached and people's lives being radically changed. Changed to such a degree that they leave everything they know and they become evangelists themselves. When we read this, it's shocking to us that regular Christianity and the gospel is extraordinary Christianity today and it should not be that way. Paul's strengthening their souls. It's the same word, this word for strengthen or establish or steadfastness. I love this. In 1 Peter 5.10, this was my dad's life verse. Sorry. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That suffering may last for a season, but it's not all of life. Pruning may last for a season, but it's not all of life. And even if you suffer more than most, there is coming a day where Jesus Christ, our groom, is going to make everything perfect. He's reminding them not to place their identity in the difficulty or in the crowds. Did you notice here that 
the same crowd that wanted to like sacrifice things to them as gods were the ones that ended up stoning them? Is that not a, a word for us that live in the social media age of Instagram and Facebook and how many likes we can get? where so much of our identity is based upon what the crowd thinks. And I think Paul's echoing from this chapter, or at least Luke is as he's writing it about the ministry of Paul, is pay no attention to the crowds. Because if your identity comes from them liking you, it's going to die by them hating you. And you just don't even know. This is not the first time this happens. This happens again too when Paul lands on an island and he gets bit by a snake and he doesn't die. and They want to they, they just worship him and then... Don't listen to the noise. Paul's reminding them of their identity in Christ. He's strengthening their souls. Listen, it's not wrong to need your soul strengthened. We're all weak and weary, and we walk through difficult times, and we walk through seasons where, where it's hard for us to even pray. And it's okay to say, hey, hey, I need some help here. Doubts are surrounding me. My soul is disturbed. I, I, I don't have peace and joy like maybe I once had. It's okay to, to throw a flag in the air, to shoot a flare and say, hey, I need some help. It's amazing to me how people make their lives so busy to attain this American dream and they miss the common means of grace like the gathering and community group and being a part of some sort of huddle or people speak life and and, and then I, as a pastor, I fear that so much because the further they distance themselves from community, the more they're kind of all alone. And we know the enemy is going to get the ones that are out by themselves. This literally burdens me to, to staying awake, praying for you as, as maybe that is part of your life. It maybe has ended up in a pretty hard conversation from me to you where I said, hey, dude, what are you doing over there? You need to get back. You need to come back into community where we do this shoulder to shoulder, not this Lone Ranger stuff. Strengthen their souls. I know I'm out of time. He encourages them to continue in the faith. I love that, this process of like literally putting courage in them. I can't tell you how many times there's been along our church planting journey in the past eight years that I wanted to quit. It happens more than you want to know. I can't tell you how God has sent someone to me every time when I was there to press courage into me. A random phone call from one of my church planning buddies just going to staff meeting with our incredible staff as, as we just speak life and encourage one another. Ashley knowing kind of when I get that weird look on my face like, okay, he's, he's going to need a little bit more nurturing and, 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 and that, happens, that happens a lot. As we're talking about these church planters, can you just hear from the heart of one of your pastors? It is so hard. As you pick a fight with Satan and you're all alone and you're trying to do all this, there's a planter that we ended up not having a card for, but, and I don't know how we're going to do this. Maybe I can send it out an email. I talked to this guy, Andy, this week. Do you have that picture uh, back there, Terrence, of Andy? It, it's a really poor picture. I want to put it on the screen. I talked to him this week. He's in Seaside, Oregon. Uh, he is just really struggling. And he had enough boldness to reach out and say, Luke, I'm really struggling. The finances aren't coming in like they need to. I haven't been able to cash my own checks from the church. This is against me and this is against me and all these things. He's just so discouraged. 
If you haven't learned, I have such a heart for church planters, and I just want to cheer him on. Man, I want to go up there and go have coffee with him and say, Andy, you can do this, man. Just stay after it. I want to press courage into him. And that's why these cards mean so much to these guys. And, and you, you, you might know and you might not know. I don't know if you've ever walked that road where you feel so alone and so overwhelmed with just life and difficulty and how a card sent at the right time or a phone call or a text message. Listen, if somebody puts someone on your heart, reach out to them. Certainly pray to them, but send them a text. Say, hey, bud, I'm praying for you. Even if, it's, even if that might be weird, don't, don't let that be weird. Reach out to them. Pay for, pay for a meal, drop a little gift. By the, do something that you, where you communicate, man, I am for you. And God has placed you on my heart. And not only am I praying for you, but I want to do something tangible to help you. The Holy Spirit knows people who need their soul strengthened. And he tells other believers, he sends someone. That's what he does. I'm going to send someone, just as Paul's laying outside the city, stoned to death. And what happened? The disciples come around him. They began to encourage one another. He goes back into the city, and he continues on the journey. He doesn't go home. He doesn't quit because it becomes so difficult. As a matter of fact, it says in the uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3 we read a minute ago, that God proved himself faithful again and again and again. Man, I wish we could talk about this too all day, encouraging one another. We persevere together. This is the heading. The third thing that he does for them, really there's four. The third thing is he warns them about continuing tribulation. Just so they didn't see life with this rose-colored glasses, this is, this is not scary necessarily. This is just a quick dose of truth. You need people that speak truth into your life. Hey, this life is going to be difficult. Glory, uh, cro- the cross now, glory later. Again, the theme of much of the book of Hebrews. At the, and the fourth thing he does is, is, is appoint leadership in their church. And we don't have time to get into all that. But let's look at the very end of the trip. At the end of the trip, they returned to their sending church in Antioch. And it says they stayed no little time with them, which is like Yoda talk for they, they, they hung around for a while. Reporting what God had done. How the doors had been opened is a report that he gives in chapter 15. And just bragging on God for a time. This trip took over a year. They covered 1,400 miles, mostly on foot. Were ran out of city to city. Were beaten and stoned. And they come back rejoicing at all that God had done. Isn't that crazy? I was so encouraged by this passage this week. You know when you try to press the gospel forward and if 10, 10 units of effort only produce like half a unit of success and it's like you're just trying to just press it with all you have just not moving then you get a passage like this where Paul keeps getting beat down and he's rejoicing because of all that God had done it's just a different perspective isn't it you know what I'd love to see in as we talked last week about everybody being called into some sort of mission field where you live, work, and play. This is not about moving overseas, but it might be. It's not about planting a church, but it might be. I'd love to see some of you standing right here in the coming months reporting on all that God's done. The step of faith that you took. We've seen some of that. People starting Bible studies at work. People starting prayer meetings here and there. People showing up to work early just to pray. People inviting uh, other people in their, in their homes from their neighborhood. And 
Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be amazing if we had so many stories that needed to be told from here that we had to schedule several a Sunday just so we could hear all that God's doing. We're going to move into a time of communion, which is this way of Jesus strengthening our souls and encouraging us to continue in the faith. We're proclaiming his death until he comes again. We're remembering it's not by our own effort that we're saved, but by grace through faith. Then we'll return to our seats and we'll sing a song together as we persevere together. Let me say a prayer over us. And as you're just there, would you just ask God what he's, what he's calling you to do, what he's leading you to do? If you're, if you're weak and weary, can I take a second just to pray for you? If, if you're here with us today, this is not weird. If you would just raise your hand and say, Luke, I, would you pray for me? It's just been a difficult season in life. Nobody's looking at you. This is not a thing. Hey, it's just been a difficult season. Would you just raise your hand and slip it right back down? Hey, this has been a difficult season. There's people everywhere. I just want to pray a prayer over you, and then I'll be in the back if any of you would like to pray with someone. The God of all grace. God, you make your grace sufficient for us. Grace upon grace to us, and as many of us, and you know, Lord, as we're walking through difficulty in life, whether it's through a family member that is sick or our own health issues, if it's family members that are lost and not walking with you, if we're overwhelmed by just how hard it has been to bring the gospel forward in a place and a culture that is becoming more and more hostile against it. Lord, would you make your presence known in our lives? in an increasing way. Lord, could we adopt this same attitude and mindset that that Paul has that just points to you that we should have the mindset of Christ who willingly gave himself as a ransom for many that we too would lay down the desire and idol of comfort and safety and power so that we, like Jesus, could be here to serve. Lord, I pray for the things you're doing in people's hearts right now. Holy Spirit, as you're convicting of sin, if you're, as you're birthing this vision for what you're sending them to do, as you're giving them courage to reach out to someone today to encourage them. Lord, I pray for all the mission, the, the visions and dreams that you're starting in people. Holy Spirit, would you guide them? Would they take a step of faith even this week to write it down, to share it with someone? I know it's not, it's not fully understood yet, but as they're just taking some steps, would you grant us the courage to do that? And Father, I pray for fruit. But I pray that you'd prepare the hearts of many, that they, the hearts would be fertile. And as the gospel seed is planted in the lives and hearts of these people, Lord, that it would bear fruit, that we would see change, literal change, not only in people's lives, but in their families, in our city. Lord, I pray for our church that you would grant us revival. 
we would have calloused hearts that need to be entertained, but we'd be so swept up with your beauty. You would do something radical even in us. Lord, thank you for communion and this visible reminder of this inward reality that we have nothing to earn and nothing to prove. You sent Jesus to be our atonement. But not just that, that you promised that you're coming again. You sent the Holy Spirit to reside within us, to lead and guide us. We celebrate that. We celebrate the picture of this, of us being family together, persevering in this walk together. Lord, increasingly so in the days to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come and you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with us.
Scream it from the mountains. 